From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting today talking about what is happening with Palestinians and Israelis hosting rallies right across Canada. Many rallies happening here in Vancouver as well, but rallies taking place across the country in the United States as well as that fighting continues. We know that the death toll has now climbed beyond 1,000. This after Hamas launched a surprise attack on the weekend, that prompting Israel to declare war on Gaza. We're going to hear more about this coming up on the show, but we are starting by checking in with a Canadian family. Russ Vanko was in Israel, is in Israel. After traveling there on vacation, they were visiting family members. They now don't know when they're able to get home. And Russ Vanko is joining me on the line now to talk a little bit more about what is happening. Russ, thank you so much for being available and for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. Where are you and, and what's happening where you are? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, our family, so myself, my wife, and our two small kids, uh, we're right now visiting family in the northern part uh, of Israel. Uh, we also came with some friends. They're uh, like in the central part, uh, central southern part, uh, also with two small kids. And, you know, so we woke up a few days ago because they were texting us saying, hey, we hear the sirens nonstop, and you know, uh, and hear the, the the bombings. And now, where we are, uh, the tensions are starting to rise. We've been hearing the planes flying like almost 24/7 past few days, and we understand that right now uh, there are also some uh, fighting fighting happening just north as well with the Lebanon border, which is not very far from us. And and when when the attacks first started on the weekend, did news get to you, or did you did you know how soon did you realize what was happening? Yeah, as soon as we opened our eyes, just because we weren't on the northern border, uh, we were not like on the southern border. We we we, we didn't know right away. I, I woke up and then saw all the messages from my, uh, our family friends who are in the central part saying, "Hey, there there's bombing and." Uh, you know, and sirens. Uh, so then, you know, we understood that there are big issues. Uh, we've tried leaving. They actually went to the airport as well. There are no flights. So uh, we're just waiting to get out here at this time. And uh, Russ, what part of Canada are you from? Yeah, absolutely. So we're from uh, in the greater Toronto area. Right. Okay. And and how long had you been in Israel? How long had you been there visiting uh, before uh, this happened? Yeah, so we've been here. Uh, my wife is Israeli, so we've been here for approximately three weeks. Uh, you know, you can actually hear the planes flying over. Anyways, uh, but, but we've been here for about three weeks and uh, just visiting her family with our kids. And th- this must have been frightening, to say the least, looking at, at what's been happening since the Hamas attack and uh, just uh, the attack unprecedented, talking about in scale and uh, in scope of the attack, as well as, as Israel's response. So, has it sunk in as far as is what's happening so close by to you or, 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 like you said, feeling that the tensions are starting to rise where you are, too? 
Well, it just feels unreal, and there's a lot of uncertainty. You know, so first, obviously, it feels unreal. Uh, you know, and also, it's terrible because you know, speaking with folks who've been living here, they've all almost, you know, adapted to this. Although they say it's never ever been like this, you know. But but for us coming from Hande, it's just unreal. You know, to to, to be. Uh, here and knowing that everything is intensifying right now, so who knows what tomorrow will bring. We've tried actually leaving the country. Uh, our friends went to the airport, there were no tickets. We understand Air Canada also cancelled the flight, so it's just a bit in limbo what the next steps are. That must have been uh, upsetting as well to try and do that, to try and get out and leave the country and uh, and be told no, that there's there's no way for you uh, to fly and get your family out right now. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, I was supposed to fly in a few days uh, to, to Europe and I got a confirmation today to say, hey, that ticket's been cancelled. We understand Air Canada has also fly, uh, cancelled the tickets. Our friends went to the airport. We're about two hours from the airport, but they're close by to the airport. So, uh, you know, they actually went there and they had to go back because there were absolutely, you know, nothing that they could find to fly out. So, um, yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, it's, it, we just don't know what's going to happen next, you know, and if things intensify, what do we do? So uh, we, we just have to figure out how do we get our kids home safely. Right. And and when you went to the airport to, to try and get a flight or to figure out what you could do, what was the scene like there? I, I imagine there must have been others also trying to do that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So it wasn't us. It was our friends who went to the airport. Mm. For us, we, we thought it's not safe to go there. It was about two hours drive, uh, you know, so, so we didn't feel safe to go to the airport, but we wanted to see if they could get a flight. And they called us and said, hey, that there are no flights uh the airport is open, but but there's nothing they could get, uh, you know, to, to, to leave. And we've been just checking the website of the airport, and a lot of the flights uh, are getting canceled. Most of them are, in fact. Uh, so, uh, yeah. And are there Canadian officials or, or anybody on the ground there that you've been able to contact, or even in Canada, to with, with yourselves and with other Canadians as well, stuck there trying to, to figure out what you could do? Yeah, so we've been, you know, uh, I have reached out twice to the embassy over the past 36 hours or so. Their response has been standard saying, hey, you know, shelter in place, follow the advice of the government type of thing. So, you know, uh, I think for us, while that's, you know, the standard advice the government has provided, we just need to think how do we get the kids home safely, you know, looking at things on the ground and that the fighting only intensifies, uh, you know, it doesn't seem to come down just yet. How concerned are you about that escalating and, and perhaps even spreading? Well, absolutely. It's terrible. You know, bombings uh, that has happened, uh, you know, uh, today starting the morning uh, here, uh, you know, and the, 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 the major shootings in all over Israel, they don't, you know, they don't care if you're a kid, a woman, or, you know, an elderly. There have been also a lot of abductions as well, uh, as you know, a lot of people died hostages, and it doesn't matter whether they're children or not. So 
Anyways, we just, you know, want to prove we want to make sure our kids are safe. Uh, so we're looking at different options now, you know, looking whatever tickets we can get uh, to get out, you know, even if not to Canada, but to another, uh, you know, another country as an interim solution uh, to be able to go home to Canada eventually. Talking with Russ Benko. Russ is a Canadian. He, his wife, and their two small children were visiting friends in Israel when the Hamas attacks took place on Saturday. And as you know, there has been retaliation and just absolutely horrific, hard-to-describe scenes coming out from that part of the world. Continuing now with Russ, and Russ, I'm curious, you talked about the fact that your flights have been cancelled. Many flights have been cancelled out of the area. You're a couple of hours from the airport do you feel safe where you are you're being told to shelter in place but do you feel safe where you are you know no not not at all it is safer uh than you know in the south just close to gaza but we hear the planes 24 7 the kids are scared you know even to be here on the balcony just because the plane scared them you know and we understand that towns in the north have been asked stay near the bomb shelters and so forth. Uh, schools are closed. Uh, the, the, the streets are pretty empty. So, you know, in no way is this a regular sin here in Israel. No. And and you mentioned, too, that you were visiting family. Are, are you still with family then and and at least uh, together and, and trying to figure out next steps? Yeah. So, we, you know, we're trying to exactly... Uh, we're, we're family right now. We're trying to figure out next steps. We had some other families, uh, some other family members come here. You know, uh, there were uh, additional family members that were trying to come uh, from uh, from the south, but but you know, I think because it wasn't safe at this time, they 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 stayed home. We understand that their place of work uh, has been attacked. Uh, you know, so, so there have been bombings to their place of work. So everybody here is like, you know, you know, staying home or near the bomb shelters or inside the bomb shelters, depending, you know, if you hear the sirens or no. And you mentioned depending that, on the location oh, you are. Right. You mentioned that you had reached out to the embassy and to Canadian officials. Are you hopeful that the Canadian government will step in or will try uh, and do something? Uh, I mean, with flights cancelled, uh, making it even more difficult. But are you hopeful that officials might do something and, and help Canadians, uh, yourself, your family and other Canadians who are stuck there? I, I, you know, at the very least, I think the right thing to do is for the Canadian government to say something, whether they intend to offer assistance or not. At this time, we're in limbo because we don't know whether we have to find solutions for ourselves, which we are, you know, or, you know, or whether the government is going to intervene in one way or another and, you know, help us get out of here. I know a number of governments have already started doing that. You know, it would be helpful at least to understand if the government has a plan you know, or whether, you know, we're stuck here in limbo and there's no plan from the government, which is fine. Just tell us if you're planning to do anything. Right. So, so you're uh, aware of other uh, other people that are in Israel that uh, from other countries that, that their government is stepping in and, and helping them? Oh, yeah. We understand the number of, uh, you know, uh, a number of governments have already been, you know, started to send planes. Uh, you know, we're here almost paralyzed to do anything. So we're constantly following the news online 
you know, and we understand that a number of governments have already sent planes, uh, you know, whether that's Poland or whether that's, we understand Mexico is doing that as well right now. Uh, there's also others as well that are stepping up uh, to get their citizens out, out. You know, it's a delicate picture because although it's dangerous right now, it might escalate even quicker. You know, it might be even more dangerous. So I, I think just some type of messaging from the government would be good. Uh, you know, just the standard messaging is frustrating. Uh, so just, you know, tell us if you have a strategy, and if not, then right. you know, we'll, we'll, right. we'll find a way. Because like you mentioned, too, so where you are, you're about a two-hour drive from the airport. And uh, like you said, if things escalate, or, or I, I guess it would be difficult to know if that trip, uh, if you do get a flight or uh, you, you're headed to the airport, if things change, uh, th- that must be concerning that, that even doing that two-hour passage could become more dangerous. Yeah, and you know, and our original flight is later in the month, so we were able to book one flight uh you know for next week but we don't know whether the airline is actually gonna keep its promise or cancel this flight as i said i was supposed to leave in uh, on the 13th uh to europe and that flight got canceled so even if you have a ticket you know now we have two tickets to get out of israel just to be safe even if you have a ticket it doesn't mean that it's gonna you know that the flight's actually gonna happen very well it may be canceled last minute or something so there's no certainty in one way or another just because all airlines are canceling it right now right well russ uh, hopefully we can check back in with you and uh, you and your family uh, will remain safe and uh, find a safe way to get out of israel but thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this today Absolutely, yes. Uh, Thank you, and you have a great day. Well, you likely remember the name Ryan Strasnitsky. Ryan Strasnitsky is a 24-year-old from Alberta. He was paralyzed from the chest down in 2018. That was when a semi-trailer ran a stop sign and barreled into the path of the Humboldt Broncos bus. This happened in rural Saskatchewan. It was a crash that killed 16 people and left 13 others seriously injured. Well, I have been following Ryan Strasnitsky on social media, and I love seeing his post. And so that's why I wanted to talk with him today, because he posted the other day about how he has switched sports, so at least switched to focus on a different sport. And Ryan Strasnitsky joins me now to talk a bit more about this. Ryan, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I saw a post that you did the other day, and uh, on it, it was it referenced the road to 2028. I wanted to talk to you about that and a few other things as well. But uh, talk to us about what is the road to 2028 for you? Yeah, so I just recently started playing uh, wheelchair basketball, and uh, you know, I wasn't sure what to expect, but you know, instantly after my first practice, I was like, you know, how far can I take this sport now? And um, you know, with, with the uh, you know, Paralympics in mind, I thought, you know, if I can continue to train and work hard and, um, you know, hopefully I can make the Paralympics for basketball now. So, um, you, you know, I know hockey was a big part of my life, but now that I found basketball as well, it's like I can add that to the resume. Was it challenging to move from hockey? And, and like you said, hockey was such a big part of your life and people uh, know you as a, as a hockey player and, and being kind of connected to that sport. How, how much of a challenge was it kind of making that shift to going from from hockey to basketball 
it was it was tough at the start. I mean, hockey is my identity, and you know, uh, making that switch I knew wasn't going to be easy. But I knew that I still wanted to be involved in, in the sport of hockey in some capacity. So I know that that door is never closed. So uh, you know, while I'm waiting for um, you know things and opportunities to open up in the hockey world, I'm gonna uh, continue to be an athlete and then play other sports. What was the biggest challenge then as far as was it was it using different muscles or, or or learning the different rules of the game to make that switch when you had spent so much time playing hockey to then switch to a whole other sport? I, I think the rules of basketball uh, kind of caught me off guard, especially the, with uh, the wheelchairs. Uh, you can't be qu- quite as physical as you can in hockey. So um, I learned that after my first practice. So now I'm learning the technical skills and uh, I get to practice with some Team Canada players. So I'm very fortunate enough to be in that position. And, you know, hopefully uh, before 2028, I can make that jump. And would you still go back to, to going into Paralympic hockey as well? Or do you see yourself kind of picking one or, or going down one path more kind of, I guess, wholeheartedly? Yeah, I think, you know, keeping all the doors and opportunities open uh, with whatever sport I can. Uh, you know, I'm not completely done with hockey, but uh, it is on the back burner now that I want to kind of explore other wheelchair sports and, and see where I could uh, potentially use my skills in, in other aspects in, in different sports. So uh, the doors are never closed. I'm, I'm going to see how, how many sports I can I can play and make the Paralympics in. And uh, amongst that uh, will be basketball, hopefully, and, and maybe hockey in the future. What has to happen to actually get on the team or to make it so you know that you'll be going to the Paralympic Games in 2028? I believe that... Uh, you get invited to camps every once in a while, and depending on how the coach feels and, and how you fit into the system, they, they decide if they're going to invite you to tryouts. And uh, from there, uh, you either make the team or you don't. And, uh, of course, on a Paralympic year, uh, they're wanting to win, so they're going to stack up their team. So uh, if you fit into the role before the Paralympic year at tryouts, then they'll, they'll take you. But if not, um, you, know, you, don't, you don't make the team. All right. Well, I know a lot of people are watching and cheering you on uh, to do that. Uh, and, and Ryan, when you, when you see what's happening with this and, and going down this path of wheelchair basketball, do you, do you get asked a lot about the crash and about how that changed your life and kind of uh, the crash in 2018 from there to, to where you are now? Uh, yeah, once in a while, people will, will bring it up and, you know, I do my best to answer what I can. And, um, you know, the biggest thing that I've noticed is that uh, people have, have stories as well. They, they you know, hockey's a small world. Uh, they have stories they want to share. So the best thing I can do is listen and, um, you know, make those connections with people because, um, you know, you know, hit the world, uh, tugged on the heartstrings. And, um, you know, everyone wanted to show their support. And they did show their support. So uh, the best thing I can do for them is, is just to listen and, and create that connection. And I realize that I'm right now asking you uh, about the crash and about how how your life was changed by that. And uh, so it might be a bit odd, but uh, do you get tired of people asking you about it? Uh, Not really. I I just sort of accept that it it is a part of my life and uh, people are going to be curious. So, uh, you know, obviously uh, (laughs) some people might not ask the best questions a little too much, but for the most part, everyone's great. And uh, I do my best to answer what I can. I, I, I've seen recently as well that you have also become an ambassador when it comes to uh, accessible housing. I know you've been working with the Rick Hansen Foundation as well. Uh, I'm curious about housing and how you got involved with that. Yeah, so I think after, um, you know, sports, I, I knew that, you know, I did a bit of public speaking as a career in, in sports and, and uh, kind of showing myself on social media. But I thought, you know, there, there's more to it. I think I can... I uh, try my best to, to help others out and 
Uh, amongst that was deciding to dive into accessibility consulting and architecture. So I talked to Rick Hansen about it, and he kind of guided me and, and showed me the right uh, things to do and, and, and where we're kind of headed in the future. So I decided to start sort of accessibility consulting for people living with both mental and physical disabilities, as well as uh, partnering up with, um, you know, accessible architecture uh, uh, companies and whatnot. Were you surprised when you started looking into it uh, about just how inaccessible housing is and, and that lack of accessible housing? Exactly. I mean, uh, I'm from Calgary, so it's a pretty old city. I mean, just the, the lack of accessibility everywhere you go, um, you know, makes you wonder how some people are even able to get around and, uh, and enter buildings and, and be able to use all the facilities. So, um, you know, obviously we know that doing one little project doesn't going to change uh, everything. And, uh, but we know that continuous progress over time might be able to help uh, someone's life uh, be a little easier. So uh, amongst that process, I mean, we're just going to do our best every day to uh, bring awareness to accessibility and, and the importance of it. Well, my guest is Ryan Strasnitsky. He is a 24-year-old from Alberta. You'll remember that name. Ryan was one of the 13 people seriously injured in the 2018 Humboldt Broncos bus crash in Saskatchewan. Well, today, Ryan Strasnitsky has tried experimental treatments for his spinal cord injury. He's become an ambassador when it comes to accessible living spaces. He is working to get to the Paralympics to play basketball. And Ryan, I wanted to talk to you more about how you are doing the ambassador work when it comes to accessibility because I also saw you quoted talking about how different it is when you're somebody who has the means to say build a ramp or retrofit your home the means to build your own accessibility but I'm sure you've encountered and you would know there are many many people who simply can't afford it can't do that so is that something that you are also hoping to change absolutely I think uh you know, obviously the architecture itself is, is something that needs to change so that we can uh, work towards a more universally designed uh, architecture plan where uh, everyone can access it. Um, but I guess one of the biggest inaccessibilities to it all before the architecture is, is the funding. Um, you know, there, is, there are funds out there and um, there are ways that people can help out, but that's one of the biggest barriers that people with disabilities face is, is lack of funds to uh, make those changes and uh, put the funds towards something that is important and, and needs to be done. And how has working with the Rick Hansen Foundation, how has that been as far as getting that message out there and, and being able to be the ambassador? Uh, it's great. I mean, me and Rick go, go back to, you know, the day of the accident. He, he reached out. We've met a few times. We've, we've chatted all the time. So, uh, you know, he's someone that I, I look up to and, and someone whose shoes I can hopefully fill in the future and, and continue on the legacy of, of trying to find a cure, cure for spinal cord injuries, but also just make uh, life easier for those living with disabilities. And, uh, you know, we're working together and we're, we're going to continue collaborating with, with all sorts of companies and individuals. So, uh, again, it's, it's uh, one of those things where it's not going to happen overnight, but it's going to be a continuous progress uh, overnight, or sorry, over, over time. Right. Did he have any tips or uh, any feedback on your Paralympic goals? Uh, he just, you know, the biggest message he wants to get across is just enjoy it. Um, you know, it's the biggest thing at the end of the day is just the enjoyment. If you're not having fun with what you're doing, then there's no point in doing it. So, um, you know, I'm enjoying sports right now. I'm an athlete by heart. So uh, I'm going to continue, you know, pushing for that goal and, and who knows what will happen.
Uh, you mentioned as well spinal cord research and working for that. And I think so many people, myself included, have followed you on social media and have watched uh, whether it's more of an experimental treatment or have watched you travel and and try different different ways of of healing. What has that been like? And and what is it like sharing that, knowing that so many people are watching and, and watching what what's happening to you? Yeah, I think for me, um, you know, I had the idea of, you know, why not? So when this experimental surgery came out in Thailand, I thought, you know, why not? So I went and, and tried it out and we had uh, amazing results and we're going to continue working towards that. And I think, you know, with the help of technology, uh, the cure for spinal cord injuries will come sooner than we think. So uh, it's incredible just to, to be able to do that and to kind of share that journey and, and provide hope to people looking for, for answers. So uh, that's one of the biggest, uh, most rewarding things that I found is that uh, when people come to me for advice or, or help for whoever uh, needs it, I'm, I'm able to give those answers and hopefully provide some help in, in some sort of way. And I'm hoping this this question isn't going too far into personal information, but but watching that and seeing you try the experimental uh, uh, therapies and such, people will know, and again, from, from the crash in 2018, that, that you were paralyzed from the chest down. Have you regained any feeling or, or had any kind of breakthroughs or big changes since then? Yeah, so I had... Um you know, after the surgery, I had stem cells as well, and I found that some of the sensory neurons came back. So uh, some of the sensations that I feel below the injuries are, are slowly coming back. Uh, the, the motor function itself, without the device, I don't have a whole lot. But once I have the, the device programmed and I use it consistently at physio, uh, the muscle tone comes back and you know, my legs don't atrophy and I'm able to actually keep the legs healthy and, and hopefully regain those neural connections to make those motor pathways work. What does that feel like when you have the, the device hooked up or when you see that and you see uh, the, the muscles coming back and, and, the, and the movement? Or, or are, you even, are you able to explain what that feels like? It's very tough to explain, but it's, uh, you know, it's exciting. And I mean, it, it you know, helps you remain hopeful, right? And, uh, obviously, we know that this isn't a cure for spinal injuries, but it is the right step in the right direction. So, um, you know, just the fact that I'm able to have muscles contract below the injury and that, um, you know, I'm not completely hooped, I guess, is, is one of the best feelings. So uh, it makes you sort of motivated to continue to, to move forward and, and uh, always look for the next, next best thing. Do you think artificial intelligence, uh, that AI or, or some of the, the big changes when we look at technology, do you think that's going to come into play or, or might play a role when we're talking about spinal cord research and spinal cord injuries? Uh, it could, yeah. I mean, uh, I'm not too familiar with, with how, um, you know, what AI would be uh, providing that, that sort of field. But I, I know that with the help of technology, I think we can use anything we can get, right? And, um, you know, if it's not a detriment to, to anyone's knowledge or expertise or, or the science community, then I think we can use it to collaborate and, and work towards curing, you know, more than spinal cord injury. So it definitely could p- play a role. But uh, again, I'm not <laughs> too familiar with how it all works. Sure. Yeah. It's a, n- neither am I. Uh, so at this point, uh, how, just to get back to, to basketball, and uh, and I know you were playing, uh, getting uh, more into golf as well. How much of your time are you spending or how, how much does that kind of take out of your schedule as far as training uh, with that goal of 2028 in mind? Uh, quite a bit. I mean, I'm, I'm on the basketball courts about three or four days a week. And then uh, uh, obviously the golf season is coming to an end here. So don't golf as much now, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I like to stay active. So 
uh, you know, every day I'm, I'm usually doing something, whether that's training or, or playing a sport or even both. So uh, I like to keep active, try new things, and uh, just continue to stay uh, healthy. Well, it's uh, great to watch and uh, see uh, you on this road to 2028. Ryan, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining me. Appreciate it. Of course, yeah, anytime. Thank you for having me. There are uh, apparently, apparently there is an increase in the number of so-called ghost guns being used and being found at crime scenes. But the RCMP isn't keeping records on how often these types of guns are being used or where, whenever they are coming into contact with them. And that has some people wondering... Should we not be paying more attention or at least be keeping those records? Well, joining me now to talk a little bit more about this is Daniel Fritter, the owner of Caliber, which is Canada's largest gun magazine. Daniel, thank you so much for being with us today. Hey, no problem. Happy to join you. And uh, I guess a belated happy Thanksgiving to everyone. Yes, yes, to you as well. Uh, before we get into to the numbers and kind of what uh, RCMP are seeing or what we're seeing in some parts of this country, can you explain what exactly is a ghost gun? A ghost gun is any firearm that has basically been uh, manufactured usually in a, in a home-based sort of setting uh, and is informally made, so it doesn't have a serial number, it doesn't have a formal manufacturer. Uh, and these can include firearms that are assembled from uh, parts that you purchase at Home Depot and 3D print additional parts for to uh, very commercial-looking firearms that are largely indistinguishable from like commercial Glock handguns. Hmm. And and do do we know if it's becoming more of these are being made or manufactured or is it oh, kind of hugely okay. on a global scale? Um, when you look at any sort of academic or anyone that's examining firearms proliferation throughout the world, this is the issue they're looking at. This is such a prevalent issue. Um, there are rebel forces fighting armies with three D printed firearms right now uh, in Asia. That's actually happening. Um, so in in actual you know, arms world terms. Yeah, everyone is looking at this stuff uh, because it has huge implications. Everyone, we're talking about, obviously, from a public safety perspective, policing Canada, domestic issues. Uh, but this has huge ramifications for global terrorism, uh, overall conflict. It, this is a massive, uh, it's a game changer, effectively. And is it because of the the use of the 3D printers that that's what's made it so much easier? Yeah, effectively, uh, the combination of the advent of polymer handguns uh, and then, of course, the ability to now print polymer structures uh, has given it the ability so you can kind of print the plastic frame and then buy some parts. And because the parts are not serialized, like a, a Glock handgun is a serialized handgun. It's got it right there on the dust cover. Uh, the barrel is not. You can buy a Glock barrel. It's not a serialized part. Uh, in Canada, to be honest, you don't even need a gun license to buy one right now. Uh, and that's where a lot of these issues are coming from. These are uncontrolled objects because in many cases, uh, it's a steel tube. You know, if we talk Glock handgun barrels, there's machining involved and rifling. Uh, but shotguns like, you know, what killed the former Japanese prime minister? You know, that's they're parts from a hardware store. Um, this is effectively making gun control completely obsolete. And what about the ammunition? Where are people getting that? You can make that yourself. And again, it's it's where it gets around the circumvention of authorities is that when you purchase components for ammunition, like bullets, brass cases, powder and primers, those are individual parts that you can put together in your garage with, with tools to make ammunition. And a lot of those components are sold globally on uncontrolled websites and they ship around. And they're also very hard to interdict because in a lot of cases, um, if you get a big bag and it just is labeled lead, you probably don't think, oh, bullets, you know, uh, and then it sneaks on through the border and it gets to wherever it's going. So, um, it's again, it's it's a game changer insofar as enforcement and, and by extension policy, I think.
So does it seem odd that so in this country, at least uh, the RCMP and there, there's a story on this in the Globe and Mail, the Canadian press has been covering this as well. Does it seem odd that that the RCMP isn't keeping records on how often they're they're finding ghost guns or that ghost guns are being used in crimes? It is uh, and it isn't. It is. I know that's a very bad answer, but it is in so far as as an average person and someone who works in the firearms industry. Yeah, it's mind blowing that we have this. Or like globally, my industry and, and my community is confronting this huge seismic shift in firearms and how they're produced uh, and engineered and developed. Um, and, and here domestically, we're learning that the RCMP, who have, you know, the Canadian Firearms Program, they're in charge of all of the guns in Canada and all of those of us that have licenses aren't keeping records is shocking. But they also don't keep nationalized records on uh, the source of crime guns, which is something that we've been discussing for the past three years as there's been this back and forth of, you know, how many guns were sourced in Canada versus how many were, were sourced uh, overseas. You think about Port of Peak and the debate of, well, where did the guns come from? We didn't know forever, you know. Mm. Um, and it's it's really weird because this industry that I work in and the community that I'm part of is so heavily regulated. I mean, we all get daily criminal record checks, and yet this is basic, you know, database stuff. Like, how are you not how are you not just going with a special marker on files for police reports in the RCMP of if the firearm was manufactured uh, as a ghost gun deserialized, you know, mark it so we can at least get a repository of this, know how many crimes are committed. It's, I, I was shocked when I read that article. Uh, and when you mentioned Porta Peak, uh, the mass shooting in Porta Peak, that was a case, though. I mean, the RCMP knew where the guns came from. They just w- didn't release that information. And I think that's where I start to ask questions where they didn't release the information, but then the information, the the government wanted the information released. And it starts to become a case of, well, what information does the government collect and what do they want disseminated and why? Um, And I'm not really sure, but I do think that the government absolutely needs to start tracking this stuff uh, and needs to start getting a handle on it because um, we're already too late. We're already behind. I don't I hope we're not too late, but we are already very far behind uh, if we're to get a handle on this stuff. How, do we know how it would play out then, or if somebody is caught uh, in, in involved in a crime and using one of these ghost guns, one of these printed, three D printed, manufactured, homemade guns, is it is it considered a crime the same as if you were uh, unlicensed, or or even if you were licensed and you were and you had a handgun and you were you were breaking the law with it? Yeah, absolutely. Even more so, because um, there are laws about uh, if you're a registered handgun owner, all of your guns have serial numbers and they are registered to you as an individual. You have to have a registration certificate for that individual handgun. Um, so there was already a metric ton of controls on there. So, of course, if you build your own, there's a whole bunch of laws around building your own gun, because some people actually do. A lot of guys will build a hunting rifle or an older style black powder rifle. Um, for hunting season if they're really into making a ton of work for themselves. But uh, making a handgun, very difficult to do legally in Canada. Uh, It is a whole separate set of laws that you're contravening. If you do it, um, I would strongly suggest people not explore that. Right. No, I was just curious if because we do have uh, gun laws in this country, as people know, uh, even if you if you don't have your license, uh, people, I think, are, are somewhat familiar with those laws. I was I was just curious if it would be the same crime or the same. You could potentially be charged with the same crime if you were in possession of a ghost gun, the same as in, in the illegal possession of a different of a, of a more traditional gun. Uh, probably a little bit worse, to be honest, because they'd probably be looking to charge you for manufacturing as well, because that's a you, you can't manufacture guns. That's a whole other law. Um, so if you didn't make it, they'd probably pressure you with that particular um, law to make you tell whoever did make it for you. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's worse than being caught with a normal gun, um, but only marginally. <laughs> right.
What do you think could be done then? And again, so they're they're not keeping records. We don't know the, the true numbers. With, with other guns, I mean, it is easier, isn't it? You you would know uh, if guns were, say, brought in from the United States or, or with the, the serial numbers where they had come from. Uh, you, you, they, they would at least be able to trace them uh, easier. So so what could be done to, to get a better handle on this? I don't know. And I think the difficult part uh, that people probably need to think about this problem from or the perspective is, is if you use the American amendments that everyone's so familiar with, this is basically the combination of the first and the second all in one, because the information that people are using to print these 3D printed files is just data on the Internet. It's information. Um, if you're going to have a government that starts to restrict civilian access to information, such as engineering information, it gets very difficult to say when to stop. Um, because it get into things like fentanyl precursors and manufacturing other stuff. What the government allows people to know is very difficult to regulate, and it's something that I don't think a lot of governments want to get into. Um, but this, unfortunately, brings those two issues together, because if, you, if you're going to let people have access to all of these files and print stuff off, well, by Jove, they're going to do it. And the big concern that I think a lot of Canadians should also be concerned about is that this is bringing a degree of informality to firearms that Canadians have never known. Handguns in Canada have been registered forever. Um, since the 20s, you've had to have various reasons for them. They're very restricted and very controlled. That has led directly to a culture in Canada that for a long time uh, did not involve a lot of handguns in crime. You know, if you went back 50 years and you were a criminal with a handgun, you were kind of an outlier because it wasn't seen as normal, right? Mm. Um, now it's changing a lot. And this shift, again, you're talking about kids, the kids that are doing this stuff, that are printing these things off. They're not a 38-year-old guy like me in my garage. They're... 17, 16, 18, they don't know better. And smuggling a handgun from the States, there's a lot involved in that. That sounds heavy. If you're to tell your average 16-year-old, hey, go smuggle a Glock, yeah, probably not. Mm. Print something off at home, sounds a lot more appealing, sounds a lot less daunting. Um, And I'm worried that this informality of being able to produce these things at home with no one knowing Truly, you know, you could a 12 year old could make one of these things that their parents wouldn't know if they weren't paying attention is truly frightening to me. I think it's going to lead to a sea change in attitudes um, around the use of firearms in the use of crime in Canada. And I, I say, I mean, with what's going on this weekend, I'm almost scared to say it, but people have to confront that the world may not be as friendly as we thought it was. Yeah, no, and, and, and certainly that's a whole other thing, isn't it? Looking at, at some of the reaction and what's what's happening there. Uh, when you talk about that as well, so a, a teenager or somebody, you wouldn't need a whole lot to, to, to do this, the 3D printed parts to, to build these, these uh, firearms. Are they themselves, are there issues with, I don't think I'd want to shoot a gun that was 3D printed. I would be... None whatsoever. No. Uh, uh, The guns that are now being produced are, you can can 3D print a rifle that is large enough to take down a grizzly bear. Hmm. And it is perfectly safe to shoot. There are videos of people shooting them full auto in the States, round after round. Um, Once you get into the engineering and how they work, it's getting very easy to contain the pressures of these. Um, Like I said, there's submachine gun designs that are being literally deployed by militaries. Um, These are very reliable. And I think these days, if some kid was looking at doing it, there'd be so many videos out there of the various designs operating flawlessly that they would not approach it with, to be quite honest, the due care they would, because you can absolutely blow your hand off if you make it wrong. Right. Just because someone else in Alabama made it right doesn't mean that the one you're making is right. So, yeah, it's super risky, but I don't necessarily think that's going to be something that, 
a 17-year-old that's considering this confronts, per se. And so do you think there's anything that could be done as far as regulation or, or bringing in some kind, making some part of this process illegal? Or would that be something that, once again, would be would be targeting people who are law-abiding and would make no difference because people w- would still do this? There is, and I think uh, some gun owners may decry it, but the, the, the very easy solution would be, and it's not complete because there are no complete solutions or magic bullets, no pun intended, Um but with this particular regard, if they were to regulate parts, which is actually something that many people in the gun industry have asked for and said, hey, you know what, don't do the handgun ban, just regulate parts. If you're worried about the ghost guns, um, like I said, with the barrels, they're a complicated machining process to make. Absolutely, someone could make one in a machine shop and you can smuggle them and stuff. But if they were to make it so that barrels could only be purchased in Canada by licensed individuals, um, and then maybe extend that to some other components that are difficult to manufacture, like magazines can be a little bit harder, Um pick up on individual components that are very difficult for private individuals to manufacture in a home-based setting, regulate those the same as we regulate firearms and ammunition. That would quell a lot of the, uh, what was kind of called uh, hybrid uh, ghost guns, which is a gun where you're using commercially manufactured parts and homemade parts to make a largely commercial facsimile. Um, Because those commercial facsimile guns are very, very dangerous in criminal hands. Uh, 3D printed alone, where you're forced to use components from a hardware store, becomes A, much more difficult, and B, they're much less effective. So from a criminal perspective, then you start to go, well, maybe I do want to smuggle it. Because if you pull one out and you try and shoot someone and it doesn't work, well, you're probably dying. So (laughs) they might care a bit more. Um, That is one thing that we have approached the government from as an industry. Uh, There wasn't a whole lot of receptiveness to that. Um, They just went, hang on, think so. Uh, I think they'll probably look at that down the road, suffice to say, because it's just about the only thing that I can think of. Well, it's uh, certainly an, an interesting one and one that uh, deserves a lot more conversation. We'll leave it there for today. But Daniel, always great to chat with you. Thank you so much. Likewise, Jill. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.